God, you are the great I am. Uh, You are the creator of all things. Uh, You've given us life. The greatest gift that you've given us is your son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the one that through him we have life and hope and strength. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no greater way for us to get to know you than through Jesus. We thank you. We thank you and praise you for who you are. Thank you for uh, a church like this. Thanks for Genesis that we can come into this place today and uh, sing praises to you. And uh, Lord, none of it's worth it if you're not here, if you're not a part of it all. And so we just ask that you would be here with us amongst us today. And uh, as we continue, as we read your word, Lord, that uh, you would open up our hearts and our minds to to hear from you in a powerful way today. We belong to you. This is your church, and uh, we are here to serve you. And so have your way in us today. Have your way in each of us, Lord. Uh, We want to encounter you in a a powerful way. And so do what only you can do. Thank you again for your love. I pray you'd speak through me today and speak through this time. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks to our team for leading us in worship today. It's a great song and great worshiping with you this morning. And uh, welcome to all of you here today, especially for those of you that maybe this is your first time uh, at Genesis. We, we love having you here with us. And my name's Paul. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis. If we haven't had a chance to meet before, uh, I'll be up front after the service. I'd love to meet you and love to tell you a little bit more about our church family and how you can be a part of, of this place uh, with us. And if you've got a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 18. Uh, John is the fourth book of the New Testament. Uh, Our Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've been in the book of John. John was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, He has copied down for us a lot of the details of Jesus' life and his teaching. And we've been studying through that book together all year long, uh, working through one chapter at a time. We only have a few weeks left in John, uh, but we're at a real exciting point in the story today. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. I also want to point out that in a couple of weeks, on Tuesday night, November the 1st, First, uh, my friend and a friend of Genesis, Brad Nelson, is going to be here with us. Uh, Brad is a fantastic teacher. We had him here last fall uh, to teach on the life of the Apostle Paul. He's going to be with us here for two hours on Tuesday night, November the 1st, and uh, help us as we finish up with the book of John. And Brad's an engaging teacher. Uh, He brings things to life in a really unique way. And uh, so we're looking forward to having him here. If you love going deeper in your Bible, Bible, this is the event for you. And uh, you, we just ask that you'd sign up. It's free, uh, but just sign up to let us know that you're going to be there. You can use the QR code on the screen or go to our website and, and just let us know that you're coming. Feel free to invite your friends to be here with us. Uh, again, that's digging deeper, going deeper with uh, the Gospel of John with Brad Nelson on November the 1st. But hey, if you don't have April 8th, 2024 on your calendar, you need to write it down. Does anyone know what's happening on that day? It's kind of a special day. I know my daughter does because we talked about this this past week, but uh, here's what happens on April 8, 2024, a total 
solar eclipse, similar to what took place in August of 2017. If you were around, you might remember it. It was really big news. Uh, there were watch parties all over the place. People traveled to locations like Bowling Green, Kentucky uh, for a better viewing experience. Schools wouldn't let kids go outside for recess for fears they might incinerate uh, under the eclipsing uh, moon there. But ironically, Indiana wasn't even the best viewing location for this total solar eclipse. But I got good news because on April 8, 2024, central Indiana is going to get an up-close front row seat to what scientists call the path of totality, uh, that the best viewing area in the United States will begin here on the uh, southern coast of Mexico and extend up through the U.S. from San Antonio to Dallas to Little Rock to eventually our very own Indianapolis. And if conditions are just right, at 1.50 p.m. on April 8, 2024, the sky is going to look something like this. And last for about four minutes and 30 seconds is what I was reading. A, a solar eclipse is when the, the moon passes between the sun and the earth. And this moment or this climax is called the umbra. And the umbra is the moment when the moon has perfectly aligned with the sun. Darkness will appear to dominate, but not for long as the light will fight its way through from the edges. And you're not going to want to miss it, but don't burn up your corneas looking at it either. And so I'd suggest you get some ISO certified solar viewers, but you might want to order them early because like everything else in the world, I'm sure there'll be a shortage, all right? But uh, this theme of light versus dark is a theme that is prevalent all through the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And it begins on the very first day of creation when God created light. And shortly thereafter, we know from the story of creation, he created created a garden, a place called Eden, and the Bible tells us that it was very good. But then Adam and Eve sinned, and darkness came rushing into the story. And you could say that this dark shadow eclipsed over everything that God had previously called good, but it all changes with Jesus. And the gospel writer John wants to make sure we don't miss it. Interestingly, John chapter 1 opens much the same way that Genesis 1 does in the beginning. This is John's way of calling attention to a new day, a new creation that was initiated with Jesus. John says this about Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 4, that in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He says, the light, Jesus Christ, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A few verses later in verse 9, John says that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, that Jesus, the Son of God came into this world to bring light, to offer life for each of us. We know that he entered a world as a baby. He grew into a man, and it was Jesus that said this about his life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the promise and the hope of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what we call the good news here at Genesis Church. The good news is this, that you and I don't have to get stuck in the dark. All right, you don't have to live your life wandering through the dark of this world, that Jesus is the light and that his light offers life for every single one of us. And his invitation is for anyone and everyone to put your faith and your trust and your hope in him. Is that a decision you've ever made in your life? All right, can you say today that you are trusting Jesus Christ
Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is he light and is he life for you because he offers it for each of us and he offers it today? And for the last few weeks, we've been looking in on Jesus and his disciples on the final night of his life and some of those events and certainly those teachings. And we've seen Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. Uh, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He shared words with them that were meant to prepare them for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And he shared words here meant to uh, prepare them, to prepare the disciples for the challenges that they're going to face in the days and the years to come. Today, we arrive at the climax of John's gospel. John chapter 18, as the battle between two kingdoms, uh, this kingdoms of light and darkness come on to full display. And I'll invite you to watch closely because while the darkness may appear to dominate for a moment, the light is ready to burst through. Let's pick it up in John chapter 18. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with us, we'll also put these words on the screen. But John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, here's what the disciple John records, that when Jesus had finished praying, and we, as we studied last week in John chapter 17, there is a very long prayer that's recorded by John. That's what John's referring to. But when Jesus finished praying, he writes, Jesus left with his disciples. They crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And so according to John, Jesus and his disciples have left this temple area. They've crossed the Kidron Valley, and they've entered a garden. And here's a picture from the perspective of the garden, from the perspective of, of Gethsemane, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. And just uh, if you keep going up in the picture here, this is the, the temple as it appears today, the temple walls here in the background. But again, this is the Kidron Valley. And under, uh, excuse me, the gospel writer Matthew calls this place the Garden of Gethsemane. But what does John call it? Look back at John chapter 18, 1 for a moment, because I want you to note here as it's highlighted that John refers to this place as a garden, but it's not really a garden. It's more of a grove, if you would, of olive trees on the edge of the Mount of Olives. Why does John call it a garden then? Well, John is making a direct comparison to another garden, the one found in Eden. And just as sin and darkness entered into the world in Eden, it's no accident that Jesus is returning to a garden to, you could say, reverse the curse, to bring light into a world that had been struggling in the totality of darkness for far too long. And what a powerful moment, all right, for us. What a powerful moment for Jesus and his disciples as they crossed through the Kidron Valley. There's a water source that lines the base of the Kidron. And because it was Passover week, lambs were being sacrificed in the nearby temple all week long. The Jewish historian estimates that as many as two 250,000 lambs and goats would be sacrificed for sins each year at Passover time. The, the blood of these lambs would drain through the sewage system of the temple and down into the stream of the Kidron Valley, and that's where Jesus is. And again, what a picture, a powerful reminder of important words like these that we see in places like Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, where we read that under the old system, the blood of goats and 
bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But look what changes in Jesus. He says, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from the sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. There was a former system before Jesus, and animal sacrifices were required to account for sins. Unfortunately, that way of doing things only worked temporarily because Jesus has come, and he is preparing at this point to offer his life as a perfect and a final sacrifice for sin once and for all, and it's all coming into focus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And John continues in chapter 18, verse 2, he says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he says, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. You could say that the darkness has arrived on the scene as symbolized in Judas, the soldiers, the chief priests, and the Pharisees, Judas arranged the meeting. He conspired with the envoy, and he knew where to find Jesus. These are Roman soldiers working alongside of the Jewish leaders, which is ironic itself because the Jewish leaders hated the Romans, but sadly they hated Jesus even more. And is Jesus panicking? Is he surprised? Does he feel trapped? Not at all. Look what Jesus does next. Verse 4, John writes, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Notice that Jesus doesn't wait for them to come and arrest him, but he goes to them. He willingly steps towards them as an indication that he has been waiting and that he is in control here. And if you don't believe me, watch what happens next because Jesus asked them again, who is it that you want? And then in verse 5, John writes, the crowd responded, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus said, I am he. And we get a note that Judas the traitor, again, was standing there with them. But note these words. Jesus said, I am he. We just sang those words a moment ago. The great I am. These are intentional, powerful words and a direct reference Jesus is making to his divinity as the son of God. This is the exact name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush and the name that ancient and modern Jewish leaders and people deemed too holy to speak even today. How did Judas, the soldiers and the rest of the crowd respond to Jesus? Verse six records when Jesus said, I am he. All right, if you're looking at your Bibles, he says that the, John records, they drew back and they fell to the ground. The, the people this envoy collapsed in the moment. What went through their minds in that moment? Like what went through Judas' mind as he struggled back to his feet? He had to be thinking, what in the world have I done? I think the darkness that we encounter here in the garden is so much like the darkness we see at work in our world today. As we talked about a few weeks ago, there's this growing resistance and pressure that's being applied to anything of Jesus today, unlike really anything that we've ever seen in our country before. And that as a follower of Jesus, uh, it can be a little confusing 
Uh, it can be frightening. It can be a little discouraging at times, challenging, wondering to yourself, like, what are we supposed to do? Like, how are we as followers of Jesus supposed to operate in a day and age like this one? What's a, a church like ours supposed to do? How, how do you live and operate in a world that's growing increasingly intolerant to the church and to followers of Jesus? How do you raise your kids in a world like ours? Like, is it possible to, to follow Jesus, to be light in a world that seems to be growing increasingly darker and darker by the day. These events in the garden and Jesus' response to them are meant to encourage us that no matter what we face, our God is in control. He is in control, and not just in the garden that day, but he's in control today and in this world too. And while he hasn't yet eliminated darkness once and for all, he has claimed victory over it. And that victory was achieved through Jesus Christ, the one who didn't run on this day, the one who didn't retreat, but instead offered himself up willingly to the crowd, the soldiers that had come. I heard someone say that the mob came to the garden to arrest Jesus that night, but in actuality, it was Jesus who arrested them in that moment, and yet he still gave himself up willingly and died on the cross so that he can bring light, and that light could shine in this world once again. But Gethsemane isn't the only place that we see this power and influence of darkness. Jump ahead to verse 12. Uh, John describes the events that took place after the arrest, that the soldiers first took Jesus to Annas. Annas was a highly influential former high priest. Annas wanted Jesus crucified, but he didn't have the authority to order it. From there, Jesus was ushered to a man by the name of Caiaphas. He was the current high priest at the temple, but like his father-in-law, Annas, he wanted Jesus Jesus crucified, but couldn't do that either. Here's what John writes of Caiaphas in John, or in John chapter 18, verse 14. He said, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Little did Caiaphas realize that by calling for the death of Jesus, he was actually helping to fulfill biblical prophecy because, again, Caiaphas didn't have the authority to kill Jesus. And so instead, as John writes, he's going to order that Jesus be sent to a Roman official, a man by the name of Pilate. Only Pilate could order the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate was the Roman official that was assigned to this particular area of Israel. He was appointed by the Roman Empire, and he had one job. His job was to keep the peace in Israel. If he kept the peace in Israel, he kept his job. If he lost the peace in Israel, he lost his head over it. And so he was a brutal anti-Semitic leader. He went to great links to exercise his control and authority and terror uh, over places in Jerusalem. The Jews feared him and despised him because of it. And, and his job, again, this job of keeping peace was especially important at a time of the year like Passover when nationalistic passions really ran high amongst the Jews. And so it's no wonder that he sent a detachment of soldiers to arrest Jesus, again, as he knew that at a time of year like this, peace was especially important. But here's what gets really interesting about Pilate. For a man with his background and authority, like judging Jesus' case should have been so simple. If the Jews wanted Jesus dead, why not? Who cares? What difference does it make to Pilate? 
But according to the gospel writer Matthew, Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus, and so she begged her husband to set him free. John records a little bit of the interaction between Jesus and Pilate and these religious leaders beginning in verse 29. Let me read some of these verses for you. John says, So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But, my, but now my kingdom is from another place. So you're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. It's fascinating when you think about it that there is no clearer example of light versus dark of a spiritual king versus an earthly king than this whole interaction and dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, especially when you consider all of the power and influence that Pilate held. Like there was no one more powerful in Jerusalem on this day than Pilate. He, uh, he held both the authority to release Jesus and the authority to crucify Jesus, and yet there's this real complacency about him, these questions this confusion. Like you could say that Pilate seemed so preoccupied with so many other things. Dealing with Jesus was nothing more than an inconvenience. And even with all the power, doesn't it kind of feel like Jesus is taking control of the situation when all of a sudden Jesus should be the one answering questions, but yet Jesus has kind of turned the page and is asking these questions of Pilate to where Pilate is forced into a situation to consider the identity of Jesus. Pilate doesn't want to see it, but Jesus is after his heart. I think Pilate is a great example of how darkness works in our world, even right now, even in a place like Hamilton County, blinding us to the truth about Jesus. As I explained this last week, the truth about Jesus creates a real dividing line, if you would, in our world, that, that you and I, you need to make up your mind that you're going to do at least one or two things with Jesus. That number one, you're either going to see him for who he really is and, and trust him as Lord and Savior, or the second option is to reject him as a phony. There's no middle ground. Like there's no third option when it comes to the identity of Jesus. And, 
And what I'm saying is I, I think I'm afraid that there's this real sort of complacency and, and even indifference about Jesus. And, it, and it's just way too prevalent in our lives and even in our communities today that no one wants to face the truth about Jesus, the real Jesus. We're, we're either way too concerned about our status, we're way too concerned with our well-being, our personal happiness, or our own personal satisfaction. Like the, the darkness, when you think about it, has this way of luring any of us into believing that you can, you can be who you want in this world. You can chart your own course. Like whatever it is, whatever it works for you, just be who you are. And the, the fact is that you and I, you've got people on your street right now. You've got neighbors that you love that you're doing life with. You've got uh, friends in your school and people in your home. There are even people in this room right now. And rather than trust and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, rather than even consider the truth about who the real Jesus is. I think there are just way too many of us that have just decided, I'll figure this out as I go. Whatever works for me will just make the best of this day and then the next one. And while Jesus offers us the gift of eternal life, while you know, he offers us a better way and the hope of salvation, not only for the future, but even in our lives right now. The sad reality is that most of us, or so many today, are oblivious or disinterested in the true light that Jesus offers. Pilate stood face to face with the Son of God and refused to believe and trust in him. Some of you have been standing face to face with Jesus for a really, really long time and still refuse to believe in him. And maybe for all sorts of different reasons. Maybe you've struggled with wanting to trust Jesus. Maybe there's some pain and hurt from your past that you're still trying to work through. Maybe you've got some questions that you're hoping will be answered. You're afraid of what trusting and following Jesus might require of your life, or you will just say, I'm not ready, or you're waiting for something else. I like what Max Lucado says about Jesus and his influence in our lives. He says this, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he'll take all of them but one. He will leave the final one for us, the final one for you and me. The choice is yours. Jesus is not going to force his way into your heart and life. He leaves the final choice, the final step to you and me. Could it be, can I just ask this, could it be part of the reason why the Lord has you here right now? that he even brought you into this room today? I mean, could it be the very reason that your neighbor invited you to come and to see what's happening in this church family? Could it be the, the story that God is writing with your life? Like he leaves the final choice up to you. Like what's preventing you from trusting Jesus Christ as your life, as your salvation? What's preventing you from putting your faith and your hope in him? Jesus is the light. And he offers himself to you and to me. The Apostle Paul said this about that impact on our lives and how we can respond to it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no greater choice that you can make in this world. There is no greater decision that you can make than to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to say, you know what, I want to follow him in everything that I do. But the choice is yours.
One more example of this light and dark conflict in John before we wrap. And for this one, we got to go back some verses. We need to go back to the garden again, picking it up in verse 10. And remember the setting. Uh, Judas and the soldiers and these religious leaders are standing on one side ready to arrest Jesus. And not only is Jesus there, but his disciples are there too, including the leader of the pack, a guy by the name of Peter. And here's what John says about Peter and these events. John chapter 18, verse 10. He says, Then Simon Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And I just can't help but think to myself, nice shot, right? I mean, you know, it's one thing to take out a sword and whack somebody in the arm with it, but to actually take off their ear. This is no amateur move, and it reminds me a little bit of Inigo Mantoya from The Princess Bride. You killed my father, right? Prepared to die, according to Inigo Montoya. But if you've seen The Princess Bride, you know what I'm talking about. Look at Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, if we back up just a little bit, Jesus had already predicted Peter's denial in the upper room where Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. Some say that Peter's response here seems to be a highly emotional uh, reaction or an attempt to prove to Jesus that he was never going to let anything like that happen. So call this Peter's attempt to confront the darkness on his own. But interesting little side note here. Why cut off the ear? Is this just an obscure detail that John throws into the story? Maybe not. Given the way John's gospel calls attention to this detail, some scholars suggest it's not random that when you combine the ear with its owner, with history, going back to the time of Herod the Great, you can begin to understand why Peter directed his dagger at whom he did and where he uh, aimed it. See, Malchus as John records, was a servant of the high priest. The historian Josephus describes how the high priest would regularly delegate shady business to servants like Malchus. And so for Peter to attack the high priest, the servant of the high priest was like attacking the high priest himself and maybe a way of sending a message to everyone about how he felt towards the religious leaders in Israel. What's even more interesting is that Jewish law required that the high priest be free of all physical deformities. Again, this unusual uh, reaction on the part of Peter may have been one attempt on his part to draw attention to the illegitimacy of the high priest and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Regardless, Jesus won't tolerate Peter's response. Jesus is not going to lead a revolution. This battle between light and darkness is not one that's going to be fought with violence or force. No, this battle between light and darkness will be won through things like obedience and love and faithfulness and sacrifice and surrender. And so the soldiers led Jesus away, and as John writes, Peter stayed as close to Jesus as possible. We like to throw Peter under the bus. Let's at least give him some credit. Most, if not all, of the disciples took off running at this point, but not Peter. 
And if you keep reading in John's gospel, just as Jesus predicted, John records three denials by Peter. The first, the first to ask Peter about his relationship with Jesus was a servant girl. Jesus did, or Peter denied Jesus. The second was a group of people standing around a fire. Peter denied Jesus. The third was a guy who was also present in the garden when everything went down. Peter denied Jesus. All three asked Peter about his relationship with Jesus each time, three times. Peter deny knowing who Jesus is, and it's at this point that we see how even the darkness can influence and impact any one of our lives, just like he did with Peter. I mean, it really is amazing how the kingdom of darkness can influence any one of us, lead us astray, get us doubting, get us focused on other less important things that are going on around us or in this world. Like this, this darkness can cause us to fear. Uh, this darkness can cause us to easily lose faith and to lose hope. It can cause us to doubt. Those doubts can lead to making decisions we never thought we'd be capable of making or doing. Even as Christians, we get angry, right? We get mean. We can slide into addictions. We make decisions that not only impact our lives, but also others. We say things we thought we might not ever say. Like we see Peter's attempt to confront darkness here with violence. Like do Peter's actions have any similarities to the way we see even those they would say are followers of Jesus today responding to people and groups that we may disagree with? If we're not careful... The dark can trick any single one of us. It can lure us away. It can take us to places that we never thought we might go. If not dealt with appropriately, like the dark can cause us to question things, to question things about ourselves, to question your own identity with Christ, to question your salvation, your eternal life. It can get us doubting our worth and our value like regrets and failures can. It can take, us out, take, it, take it out of us, can it? Like, like our regrets and failures have a funny way of stealing away our faith and our hope. Like what went through Peter's mind when he denied Jesus there for the third time? The gospel writer Luke records that moment in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 60. He says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he, Peter, went outside and wept bitterly. Like what went through Peter's mind when Jesus laid eyes on him? Would he ever be able to forgive himself? Like imagine the regret. Imagine the disappointment, the agony. John says he went outside and wept bitterly. Could he ever possibly recover from something like this? And we're going to read a little more of Peter's story over the next few weeks, but I love something I heard my friend Brad Nelson point out about this gaze or this look with Jesus. Again, go back to John one more time. That verse that we were just on, or excuse me, Luke, the Luke 22 verse. Note that Luke says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. This word for look, for gaze, uh, comes from the Greek word emblepo. It's a word that means look, but in ancient literature, it also has this 
greater definition of looking at someone with love and concerned. And interestingly, it's the same word used to describe the first time Jesus and Peter met in John chapter 1, a moment when Jesus looked at him and saw all of his potential and all of his worth. And here's where this leads me. Jesus is not looking at Peter with disdain or frustration or disappointment, but instead he looks at Peter and he sees through the darkness that led him astray and he sees Peter for who he is a child of God, a child of the King. And Jesus still sees all of the potential of God working in his life. And here's what Jesus knew, that God was going to use this moment of failure in Peter's life and use it for good and something more. And the good news is that what Jesus did for Peter he can do for any single one of us too, that Jesus can take the pain of a moment, a regret, your greatest regret, memory of a, a failure or a doubt. And if he hasn't already, he can bring something really good from it. You, you and I see our mistakes. Man, I reflect on them. And the evil one, he has a way of bringing our mistakes and us into the dark and taking away our ability to see, we feel like we're trapped, right? We feel like we're stuck. We can't see the light. But Jesus, on the other hand, he knows how powerful the light really is. And he sees the potential of his life at work in your life and in my life and in Peter's life where you and I might only be able to see our mistakes. Jesus sees what we can become. And he sees the potential. And he sees what the light is capable of producing in any single one of us. And it takes me back to the whole reason he came. As John writes in John chapter 1, verse 4, that in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has and will not overcome it. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've accomplished on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Our life and our light, our hope, our Savior, and our Redeemer. And I want to take just a moment and I want to pray for those of you here that have maybe taken that final step to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today is your day. And I would ask you to consider, why not now? The Apostle Paul says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And you can do that today. You can respond to the Lord wherever you're seated. Just say to him, Jesus, I trust you. My faith and my hope is in you. And I want to start following you today. And the good news is that we have hope and life in Jesus Christ that when we put our faith and trust in him, no one's gonna take that away. That forgiveness is yours. Salvation is yours through Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for that. 